0: My parents always used to say when a guest would come late, they would say, it's fine that you're late as long as you leave on time. So (laughs) I'll try to let us still um, finish as on time as we can, but I'm very, very sorry that I'm late. Um, So I'll just go right ahead and start. Um, Orthodox Jews often like to say that we're observing Judaism in the exact same way that our great-grandparents observed Judaism, in the exact same way that Jews 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, all observe Judaism. And that really may be true. Jewish law has not changed all that radically. And among those who follow it, there is a lot of consistency throughout history. But in a lot of areas, even if we're doing what our great-grandparents did, we're not necessarily thinking about it the same way that they did. And an obvious example of this sort of generation gap in understanding the mitzvot would be the fact that just an hour and a half after my father was here explaining mitzvot one way, here I am explaining them, Probably a different way. Um, But we're going to actually be looking today at um, three areas of Jewish law where practice has remained fairly consistent. The first you can see is kashrut. Basically, we keep kosher the same way we used to keep kosher. We don't eat the same animals the Jews didn't eat thousands of years ago. Um, But we're going to see that the explanations behind these mitzvots have changed significantly, radically, much more than the practice. Um, and have had to change with the times. We're going to see mitzvot um, that have old explanations that just would not work in the modern period and we're going to see modern explanations that are radically innovative. Um, So until we look at them I'm not going to take a stance on whether these new explanations are a good thing or not Um, but I will show you some possible examples at the end of how a radical new explanation can lead also to a radical new interpretation of the halakha, and possibly to a change in practice. So we're going to see that these explanations both kind of propel the tradition further and uphold the tradition, and at the same time may in some ways undermine the tradition a little bit too. Um, So we're going to, let's start by looking at the sources, and then we can decide together whether this is a good thing, a traditional thing, um, any of those things. Um, So I want to start with Kashrut. Um, Keeping kosher is a central part of Jewish practice. And it's actually, keeping kosher, we say it as if it's one thing, but really it's a bunch of different prohibitions. There's lists of animals that you can't eat, you know, just like, don't eat this particular kind of rabbit sort of thing. Um, And then there are a bunch of specific other things that you're not allowed to eat, mixing meat and milk, animals that haven't been slaughtered properly, a whole bunch of other things. Um, Most of what we're going to be looking at are the actual lists of which animals are okay, which animals are not okay, and the explanations behind those. Those are also what the Torah spends the most time on. Just, you know, you have these parashiot that are all just like lists of you can eat this, you can't eat that. Um, And I actually cited on the first page um, most of the longest section in the Torah Relating to Kashrut, just this very long list of what you can eat and what you can't eat, and um, I think that this list in itself already has something of an explanation for why you're supposed to keep kosher within within the list. Um, you know, we sort of say that Kashrut is a is a halakha that doesn't have reasons in the Torah, but but I think if you look at the Sutim in the Torah, you'll see that they do have reasons. Um, and I want you to just take a minute to skim through this. We're not going to read all of this. Don't try to read all of this and get bogged down in which rabbits you can and can't eat. Um, You can't eat any of them. But um, just just take a look quickly and see if you can see what's the reason in the Torah for keeping kosher. I also uh, may have biased you a little bit by uh, underlining the phrases that I thought were important. So so just take a peek quickly and tell me what you see. All right, Frida, what did you see?
1: They are unclean, they
0: are unclean for you. Oh, okay, alright, so you're already taking it to the second step. First of all, it says they are unclean a lot. The, the Hebrew word is tameh. Um, not everyone would agree with the translation unclean. Um, some people say that the, the word tame really doesn't have an exact English counterpart, um, but beyond the fact that it says the word tame many times, which may or may not mean unclean, um, it always says tamay hu lachem. They are unclean for you, um, which could mean something different from them being objectively unclean. Um, what, what else did you notice? Anyone? Yeah, what's your name? Oh great! Where do you see that? Um, okay, verse forty-four. I, the Lord, am holy. Sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Um, that somehow keeping kosher is going to make you holy and is going to have you imitating God, being close to God. Uh, oh, that's so she <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> anything else? Anything else jump out at you about the the way that these kosher rules are being presented, Hillary? Okay. All right. Tame, we can explain away. We can say a lot of things about what tame does or does not mean. The word sheket is a lot more um, sort of one-sided. The translation abomination um, may not be the only translation for sheket, but the other translations would be something like, it is detestable. It is disgusting. Um, You're not going to find anything neutral about the word sheket. Um, and, And so tame may be sort of subjective. They are tame for you. Um, but it also it is it for you, but it is that you're supposed to detest them. You're supposed to find them disgusting. You're supposed to find them abominations. Um, and in fact, the other word that, that the Torah uses that might mean abomination, the word to um, is also used, not in this section, but in another section to describe non-kosher foods. Um, so, th- so there are some words that do not seem particularly... Um, neutral, um, do not seem particularly non-judgmental. It does seem that to a certain extent the Torah is saying these animals are
1: bad, these animals are gross,
0: Um, these animals are unclean, whatever that means, but as Freda points out, it also does have the lachem modifying it, and as Sharon points out, it also has this element of holiness. Um, We're going to see that almost every single explanation of kashrut that comes after this does in some way find a basis in the sukim in the Torah. Um, But we're going to see this. I think that I I, I personally think that the explanations do seem to get a little bit further away from the simple meaning as we go. But I'll I'll let you judge that. Um, The way that I divided this up is that on the next page, page two, I put four medieval explanations for kashrut. And on page three, I put two modern explanations for kashris. Um One um, 18th century, 19th century. Um, I, I, I'd like to have you take a look at these um, with a chavruta or with a group. Um, what I want you to look out for are, first of all, just find what the main explanations are for kashrut try to think about how they link up to what's going on in the psukim. Think about which explanations for kashrut are actually related to what we saw in the psukim, and which explanations for kashrut seem to be um, kind of coming from somewhere else. Um, You can think about where else they might be coming from. And then, I guess, the last thing is if you get to the modern ones also, to try to think about how you're going to see a few different things going on in the medieval ones, but try to think about how all of the medieval ones as a group Are different from the modern ones as a group. Um, So, I'm going to, why don't you take about 10 minutes to just look through as many of the sources as you get through and try to think about those questions. Okay, I know that, I know that not everyone got to the end, but um, I think some people did, so I think, I think we'll go on now. Um, Okay, so, If you're living in the 12th century, um, like brush bum and the rambam, um, why are you keeping kosher? What's your name?
1: Okay.
0: Okay, good. It's it's unhealthy to your body. Um, So um, who says that sort of most explicitly? Okay, good. The Rashbam kind of specifically says even the body. He says at the very end, This is specifically about your physical well-being. I'm leaving no ambiguity about this. They damage and they heat up your body. Um, It was also interesting, Jennifer, that you pointed out the fact that he links up healthfulness with the concept of purity. Um, That he's actually interpreting the word tamay to be physical unhealthiness. Um right that he says nikru That's what the word Tmeim means. When the Torah says over and over again this is unhealth this is tame, what it means is unhealthy. Um, a- another interesting thing about the Rashbam is that um, Rashbam claims that this is Shuto Shell Rashbam claims that this is the simplest meaning of the text. Um, And there's one other claim that he makes about his explanation that that might be an interesting claim. Did you notice what else he says about the value of this explanation? Yeah, it's a tshuva taminim. This is a good rebuttal for the heretics. Why would that be? Why would saying that all of the animals that are not kosher are unhealthy, why would that be a good rebuttal to all of the heretics? Okay, great. Yeah, that basically saying, you know, you, you can't disagree with these laws. You, you heretics, you might say that the, non, that the kosher laws are um, irrational. Um, you might say that they're just bizarre, and why are you keeping these bizarre laws? Um, so I'm going to tell you that they actually preserve your health, and that's something you can't argue with. Um, You also want to be healthy. So therefore this is sort of a good defense. This is kind of giving a universal value to kashrut. Everybody understands about health being a good thing. Um, So if I can say that the kosher animals are healthier than the non-kosher animals, then um, I have a really good defense for kashrut. What's the obvious problem with saying that kosher animals are healthier and that's why you keep kosher? okay, no one else is dying and actually the Abarbanel explicitly says that when he um, I didn't bring this but he refutes the Rashbam and all the people who agree with the Rashbam by saying look around look at the non-Jews they are perfectly healthy how can you say that there's a problem Um, yeah Ah, very nice point. What's your name? You're deep, so, Yudit's pointing out that this isn't even necessarily Pshuto mikra, Pshuto Shalmikra is that these are laws that are specifically for Jews, um, and that this explanation seems to be kind of universalizing kashruts um, a little much. It's kind of saying that not only are these healthy, but if they are healthy, then everybody should do it. Um, the Rambam. Does the same thing as the Rashbam. And in fact, the Ramam is sort of considered to be the main proponent of the health arguments for Kashrut. There are some others who say it also, mostly all in the early Middle Ages. Um, Although some of you growing up may have been taught that the reason to not that you're not supposed to eat pork is, um, somebody just mentioned this trichinosis, that look at the Torah, the Torah was so brilliant, it already knew um, thousands of years in advance about trichinosis and that's why you're supposed to keep kosher. Um, So these explanations have prevailed to some extent, um, but as we pointed out, just a quick look around on the streets seeing healthy non-Jews everywhere will make a serious problem for these explanations. Okay, then we get to um, the Abarbanel and the Sforno, who basically agree with each other. Um, did you notice, well, well what, what is the thing that the Abarbanel and the Sforno are saying about the purpose of kashrut? Okay, it has a spiritual purpose. Um, where, where do you see that? Okay, right. So he, um, he he specifically contrasts it to the explanations about health. <laughs> this is at the beginning of a barbanel, source four. Um, that it's really about healing the nefesh, which is something different from the goof. Um, okay, a couple things. First of all, where where is Barbanel or Sforno getting, where are they getting this explanation? How, where in the Tsukim are they getting the idea that the non-kosher animals are spiritually detrimental to you? Susan? Okay, so first of all, they're picking up on the word tame. Where do you see that? Pardon me? Okay. Um, Did someone else say? Yeah? Maybe because um, the verse about um, using the word tummy is linked, if right
1: after that comes the verse about Kedusha. So maybe they're saying, oh, what time is
0: something to do with that? All right. Very interesting point. That, That we have sort of seen... The Tame explanation is kind of the opposite of the Kedusha explanation. On one hand, we're saying these animals are gross. On the other hand, we're saying that this is about you being holy like God. But maybe he's kind of reading them into each other. That um, Kedusha is about avoiding something that is Tame. So Tame must mean spiritually detrimental. Okay, all right. So so that he's also kind of addressing the problem that we raised with the first explanation. He's explaining why this is a rule specifically for the Jews. Um, I think there are a couple of other things he's picking up on in the Sukim.. Um yeah?
1: Um
0: yeah. I'm not sure what I'm not sure what is going on with that. That's an interesting point. I, I haven't seen anyone who speaks about that. Um, but that is a very interesting point. Yeah, you did. Ah. Uh, okay, where where are you? All the way down. Um, okay, so this is this is actually an interesting thing if you look at verse 43. Um this is actually kind of the, the key pasuk that um, these um, medievals are interpreting. What does the word nefesh mean? Okay, sometimes the word nefesh means soul, except when it means... What? Self. Al teshak zu et can actually be read in two different ways do not defile yourselves, in other words, do not defile your bodies, or do not defile your souls. Um, I think that this pasuk is actually in some ways the source for both the health explanation and the spiritual explanation because of the ambiguity in the word nefesh. Um, but since nefesh can basically mean body or soul, um, it's the source for both. Um, so that's one thing that the the later medievals, Abarbanel and Sforno, are picking up on Nefshotei and reading Nefesh as soul. there's another thing that they are picking up on in this very pasuk um, that I'm not sure if anyone caught. But did you notice something strange about both Abarbanel and Sforno? Um, but they both thought that not only would these animals make you spiritually less holy, but they would also do something else to you. That, that seems very out of place, um, that they're both complaining about. Did you notice this? Yeah. These animals, eating these animals will make you stupid. Kosher food is brain food. Um, that, that's why Jews are smarter, I guess. Um, so this, um, that, that all of these... But you can see in both of, both of Barbanel and Sforno talk about foolishness. Um, that's, um, and they, they, they even use the same word... Um, if you take a look about halfway through the Sforno, he says that they're molidot the Oh, sorry, the The mezek ha'enoshi that they cause in the human temperament Um And then, if you take a look at the Sforno, he uses the word al ubahem, the open where in the psukim are Abarbanelans for getting the idea of foolishness, of atimut and mitum tamim? It is a play on words with Tame. In fact, they are probably both based on a Gemara that is in Masachet um, Yoma that I, I didn't put it on the source sheet, but I'll just read it out loud. Um, this Gemara on Masachat Yomah, page 39a, says, Avera mitam temet libo shel adam. Sin makes the heart of a man or the mind of a man foolish. She ne'emar veloti tamu bahem v'nitzmetem The pasuk that we just read, um, that you shall not become tame through them and thus become tame. Al tikrei v'nitzmetem, ela v'nitzham tem. Do not read the verse as you shall become tame, but rather as you shall become mitum tam. You shall become foolish. Um, so there's this reading that exists already in the time of the Gemara that the word tame should be read as having to do with your intellect, having to do with making you stupid. Um, and when the Sforno and the Abarbanel talk about these animals making you spiritually less fit, they're also talking about them making you... In- of that reading of the word tame. Rashbam said that the word tame meant physically unhealthy. A Barbanel and Sforna would say that the word tame means that it makes you intellectually less less intelligent. It make they make you foolish. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay so the Um, yes, the Ramban points that out um, and actually gives basically a health-based explanation that because you're not you're not allowed to eat predators because eating the predators will sort of warm up your blood and cause you to be a, a nasty person. Um, Ramban or Ramban? Ramban. <laughs> Nachmanides. Ramban. Yeah, with an N at the end, or a nun. Um,
1: yes?
0: Yeah. Um, sure, it's Yoma 39a. Okay, so one thing I think that we can say about everyone who's explaining kashrut in the Middle Ages is that they're very concerned about the word teme. Um Whether the word teme means your physical well-being, your intellectual or spiritual well-being, the word teme is kind of the, the linchpin of all of the... Um, medieval explanations. We're going to notice that the word tummy doesn't appear anywhere in the modern explanations that I cited. Um, and I think we'll notice a couple of other differences. Yeah, Sharon. One can't we um, in any way assume that it was based on what they had
1: observed going on in the world at that time along with what they read and saw the way things were happening and kind of put picture together because they were no less smart than we Technology, but they were real nice, smart. So maybe they had uh, uh, viewed certain people doing certain things certain ways, and, and seen some of this that it, that, that it look like to them when
0: they did that. Well, you know, you read something interesting because one of the one of the problems with any explanation um, that. One of, I guess, the the good things or the bad things about any explanation that says these animals do X to you is that you can really just look around the world and see whether that is true. Um, And obviously the danger of the explanations that say non-kosher animals make you stupid is the same as the danger of the explanations that say non-kosher animals make you unhealthy. You just look around and you see, are people who don't keep kosher stupid? And if they're not, then you have a problem. Um, so, so I think this could be a good thing. It could be that they are observing it. It could also be that this is something that is less falsifiable because you can say to your fellow Jews, oh, you should know that the Goyim are stupid. Um, and they'll just sort of say yes, and you know, it won't be as easily falsifiable since people may not be having as many conversations with non-Jews. Um, and they could just sort of assume that. Um, but but it is also a problem at the same time, that, you know, it could very easily be falsified just by observation. Yeah. Why would they say that uh, um, they may be, but I'm not sure which one is the best reading of the word Mitum tamim. Um, I, I mean, I think that it is partially a textual reading, um, and I think it's also that they are looking
1: for something.
0: They're looking for something that Kashrut does to you that is, on one hand, rational enough that Jews will want to keep kosher. On the other hand, irrational enough that it would only apply to Jews and wouldn't be something that the entire world should be doing. And I think that's sort of the the fine line that all of these are trying to walk that we saw the first ones didn't necessarily achieve. The first one's so rational that non Jews should be doing this also. So saying that this is spiritually and intellectually good for you maybe something that wouldn't mean that the entire world needs to do it, but would mean that it is kind of logical and rational for Jews to do it. Um okay. What? if you had to sort of oh, go ahead. oh,
1: I'm not sure i I'm not
0: sure I understood.
1: Ah. Oh, okay. Hmm. Mm. Oh. Mm.
0: Okay. All right. That's an interesting point. <laughs> um. Okay. So if you, if you had to attach the shadal to uh, one thing in the psukim. What would you say is the one thing in the psukim that Shadal is most picking up on? Holiness. Holiness. Yeah. Um, right. Where do you see that in the Shadal? The first
1: sentence.
0: Yeah. Excellent. The first sentence. You want to just read that out loud? The rules of
1: holiness, so that Israel might be a,
0: a of Okay. Great. And the Shadal actually goes on. I, I didn't cite this part of the Shadal, but he that one of the purposes of the rules of Kashrus is to separate the Jews from the non-Jews. Um, so, you kind know, of that explains why non-Jews shouldn't be keeping them. Um, the rules are about specifically this separation. Um, what, are, what are the other two points that Shadal makes that I, that I brought you here about why um, you have these rules of Kashrus? Okay, good. The first one is about self-control. Um, if you just take a look at, um, I guess the the second paragraph, um, just a couple lines from the bottom of it. Kol ze meteg v'resen ha'otser u'monea ha'adam.
1: All of these
0: things, all of these laws are. Oh, and this translation was a little less literal here, um, but the literal translation would be that this is basically um, what do you call it? The thing that holds back
1: what
0: oh no a harness yeah um like a harness or what's the thing that you put over an animal's mouth a muzzle yes um it's something that actually physically holds you back um from um, from allowing your desires to overcome you um and so so that that's what kashrut is about it's about you have these limits and these limits cause you to exercise self-control and then hopefully that spills over into other areas of your life and you are a person who has self-control in your life in general. Um, And, um... The truth is, that that is kind of what he goes on to say in the other part also, is that just sort of separating from pleasure is going to cause you to be self-controlled. There was one other point that he made earlier in the first paragraph. What was that other point? Yeah. Fear of God. You eat often. Um, having rules that you're eating are going to be constantly reminding you of God because every single time you take out a snack, you take out a sandwich, I, I eat a lot. I don't know how often you all eat. But every single time you eat something, you're thinking again about all of the rules, so you're thinking again about God. Um, it's also interesting. Um, who does Shadal quote to prove that the laws of kashrut will help you have self-restraint. Okay, Epictetus, who is who? Does anyone know who Epictetus is? An
1: ancient Greek. Yes, a Greek Stoic philosopher.
0: Um, He also quotes Lamentations. You shouldn't think he's not from, Um, but um, one of his main proofs is from Stoic philosophy. So at the same time that Shaddal is presenting these laws as specific to Jews, as being about Jewish unity, he's also trying to give them a very universalist flavor. These laws are about self-control. That's something everybody can agree with. These laws are about thinking about God. That's something people like. Um, And these laws are, these laws of self-restraint are something that you can, you know, you can talk about that that Epictetus knew about already um, and that sort of every culture in the world understands the idea that having rules will help you be more self-controlled. The Shadal is um, 19th century, I think. Um, Italy. 19th? Maybe 18th. 18th or 19th? I'm sorry, I thought I'd written it down and I had not. well, well let's, let's just talk about, a little bit about how Shadal is different from every single medieval source before we go on to Rav because Rav Cook is kind of saying a whole different thing. Um, but did you notice, h- how would you describe the difference between Shadal and everything that came before Shadal? Miriam? Yes. Yes. And in fact, in a different section of Shadal that I did not put on your sheet, he says exactly that. Um, I'll just read it out loud. Even though it's possible that some of the prohibited foods have individual reasons, we don't need to look for those specific reasons. Because what do we care if the prohibited food is this one or that one? Because the main idea is just that some foods should be forbidden to us. Um, Shadal completely does away with looking through these lists and saying all of the animals that are permitted are like this and all of the animals that are forbidden are like that. There's no inherent... Goodness about the animals that are permitted, or evilness about the animals that are forbidden. It's just about having rules, having limits. Yeah? Any kind of what? Very good point that the other the other commentators really presented these as um, as these are gross. You really want to stay away from them. They make you stupid. they make you unhealthy. Um, they are shekes. they're they're disgusting. Um and here the Chazelle is really saying these these are great, you know they're they're delicious. Um, and the reason that we're not eating them is not because they would do anything bad to us. We'd really enjoy them but holding back from something that we would enjoy is um, something that's going to help us. Do you think that what Shadal is saying is grounded in the psukim? Do you think that he's... Ah, okay. All right, <laughs> Hillary, what do you think? I mean, not
1: these particular disappear, but the Torah in general, we have, uh, I mean, the that there are times to abstain and times to,
0: uh... Oh, okay. Well, we'll talk about that next, but... So, uh, I, I don't
1: think it's an un-Jewish concept
0: that, that there are things to abstain and things to... Do. All right. Um... I also think that, um, as I pointed out at the beginning, the Shadal is definitely trying to connect his explanation to the idea of Kedusha. Um, and Kedusha can sometimes be explained as, to some extent, asceticism.
1: Did he actually say it here?
0: Um, maybe not. But, but that um, Kedusha can often be connected to um, pre-shoots, can be connected to sort of separating yourself from pleasures. Um so so it may actually be there, but um, it's not necessarily so easy to read Shadal into a text that says, Sheket Hulakan, hu this is a shekes, that's a sheket. These are disgusting, detestable things. And Shadal is saying, you know, they're actually great. Um, so, so maybe, but he seems to be he seems to be picking up on a small thing in the text and possibly going against sort of the general thrust of the text. Um, According to Rev. Cook, why keep kosher? Okay, good, it is an evolutionary step. Where do you see that? Right, okay, right at the beginning. He says there, Te'adim ha el ha-matarah Um. Does anyone know what that higher goal is? To be a vegetarian. To go back to what um, well <laughs> That 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 may be what vegetarianism is leading to, but basically what he's talking about when he says that it steps towards a higher goal, his his ultimate goal is vegetarianism. This is, as you can see from the title, this is from his Chazon HaSimchanut VeHashalom, his vision of vegetarianism and peace, um, in which he basically supports the idea that in the messianic era, people will be vegetarians. That ideally, the ideal state for humans is to be vegetarian and that um, all of the laws permitting meats are just kind of, sort of, they're sort of, since you're going to eat meat anyway, this is how you eat meat. But that really they are all hinting towards the fact that ultimately you should be a vegetarian. Yes? Yeah? Uh,
1: uh,
0: Maybe. you know what? Let's even, let's read this book together because it's it's just so surprising what he says. This this visiting the sick and all of this. This is actually I I cheated because I saw the whole thing and then I'm bringing you just the very last paragraph. Um, but he kind of goes through all of the different food prohibitions and explains how each one connects to um, sort of humanizing animals a little more, treating, teaching us how to treat animals with the same kind of ethics that we would treat humans. Um, and the first one actually is Kisui HaDam. He says, Kisui HaDam Mekarevet That the myth of Kisui HaDam, of covering up the blood of a slaughtered bird or wild animal, is really about bringing the concept of Lo Tirtzach, bringing the concept of murder into how we treat animals. Um, the reason why that he explains earlier is that um, killing a bird or a wild animal who you haven't even taken care of and you just go and kill them is just such a horrible act that you should be ashamed of it. So, therefore, you should cover up the blood to show that you're, you're just mortified that you've done such a terrible thing. Um, so, so that you're supposed to basically feel the command of lo <laughs> tir of do not murder when you relate to these animals. V'isur basar v'chalav, the kilayim, of mixing milk and meat or mixing various vegetables with each other, brings et halotigzol v'lo ta'ashok, brings the concept of not stealing and not doing other kinds of monetary wrongdoing, into the realm of how you treat animals. That just like you're not supposed to steal from a human, you're also not supposed to take a baby, a baby animal, and take its mother's milk, which is supposed to be for this animal, and take away the mother's milk, and kill the animal, and cook it in the mother's milk. That's the fact that you're not allowed to do that is supposed to teach you to to treat animals ethically, to not steal from animals. And then the last one is the trefa, which is very surprising. He said, A trefa, you're not allowed to eat a trefa. A trefa is an animal with, a, basically, with a life threatening blemish. That after you slaughter the animal, you discover that it has some illness or a defect that would have caused it to die on its own. And he says that the reason that you're not allowed to eat a trefa. Is because Isura Treifa brings Chovat Hasad Ubikur Cholim Al Hachay. Because this is supposed to teach you about taking care of the sick, um, and just like you're supposed to take care of the sick among humans, you're also supposed to care for the sick among animals. Is this is true? Good point. Um, but but and, and just his last line is so have mercy at the very least on this poor pathetic trefa. don't kill him and eat him if, you're hurt, if you are too hard hearted to have mercy on all the healthy animals at least have mercy on the sick animal and don't kill him and eat him yeah Okay, right. So practically, it doesn't necessarily work. That um, practically, the animal is is already dead. I mean, he might say, okay. So also, you shouldn't slaughter an animal that's a little bit sickly, um, and that's what the, of is, the Prohibition of Tresa the prohibition of is teaching you. Um, But but I think that he's also not necessarily presenting it as practical as much as that these are sort of the ethical lessons that come out of these mitzvot are, look, the poor Trefa Nebuch, I'm going to take good care of him, I'm going to take good care of sick animals, I'm going to be merciful towards animals and eventually, hopefully, stop eating even the healthy ones. Yeah. he talks about this, and I don't recall what he says. Does anyone? He, he addresses the issue, um, grapples with it, and I don't remember what he concludes. What? Oh, he does in the end. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so, where, where's Rav Cook getting this? Where in the psukim is Rav Cook getting the idea that keeping kosher is supposed to lead you to being a vegetarian? Um, okay, so he's reading those, those commandments, those ethical commandments as being between humans um, and saying that we should sort of extend those concepts into the animal kingdom, but, but I don't think he's using that as a proof. be surprised if we were able to find something in the Torah that was a source for what Rev Cook said. Um, I think possibly, possibly you could, uh, no, I, I think I would be very surprised if you could find anything in the Torah that supports what Rev Cook says. Yeah. So you could sort of—I mean, basically, what you're saying is, if you see if you see vegetarianism as a positive value, uh, then you might say that just like I'm be holy, sort of tells you to, you know, embrace positive values, then you should also embrace vegetarianism. But it, it's a stretch. It's you know, you could say that about anything. You know, um, be holy means that you should—I don't know—any possible. Nice thing that you want people to do. Um, yeah. Okay. All right.
1: The weakness of man after Noah, was, the, the food was given, the uh, system of man was weak, and no longer refrained, in order to get yourself back. And they, I don't remember the context of the, of the of it, how they got from it. They had after, at the context of your here. To get back closer, the, the pre Noah, we didn't have meat. So that was part of the saying, okay, well, you were so weak and you couldn't handle it, okay, eat the meat. But as soon as you can get back to not being able eat the meat, now you'll do a question I really wanted to do back when someone said non and there were two Orthodox rabbis having this one vegetarian versus the non-vegetarian, and
0: they both had a lot of good baps on each, each side. Okay, so basically you could find something somewhere in the Torah. You're not likely to find very much in the laws of kashrut themselves. Um, this is this is kind of more of Rav Cook's sort of personal philosophy that he's presenting. Um, and he's sort of connecting it to the laws of Kashrut. But I, I think that this is one that is furthest from the actual verses about Kashrut um, than anything that we have seen. Um, why Why do you think Rav Cook is explaining this the way that he's explaining this? What, what, what do you think he's trying to get at by turning all of the laws of Kashrut into something that's about vegetarianism? I mean, I think a lot of it is like we said with Shadal, he's also presenting a modern value. You would never see the Rambam saying that you should be a vegetarian, and the, the laws of Kashyad are about being a vegetarian, because no one in the Middle Ages believed in vegetarianism as a good thing. If you could afford meat, you got meat. Um, and Rev. Cook, living in the modern period, and embracing vegetarianism as a good value, which had never been a good value in the past, um, is trying to read that into the psukim. The whole idea of kindness to animals, of, you know, um, treating animals humanely is not something that you find a lot in the ancient world, in the medieval world. Um, And all of a sudden, I don't think it's a coincidence that all of a sudden, when those values appear in society as a whole, then those values also appear as a reason for the mitzvot of Kashrut. Um, possibly like Shadal, who may be reading some of the values from the society around him of um, not having a good time um, into the laws of Kashrut. Um, so, so just a couple of things about what we've seen so far in the laws of Kashrut. Um, first of all, we saw that the medievals were very concerned with interpreting the word Tumah, um, that they interpreted the word Tuma, Tame, as being either physical health or spiritual health, um, and then the word Tame just disappears in the modern period. Um, we saw that the modern sources try to use use the rules of Kashrut to teach universal values, um, to teach values that they that are popular in their societies of self-restraint, of vegetarianism, um, of, you know, (laughs) quoting Stoic philosophers, um, and and that really this idea of sort of self-control becomes, and and even of ethics, becomes a lot more important in Kashrus, where in the past it had really been about more sort of self-preservation, about this being good for you. Um, Just quickly before we go on, um, I wonder if we're going to talk about this more when we look at some of the other things, but I do wonder if some of the um, modern uses of the word Kashrut that we see nowadays are connected to these more modern explanations. That, um, for example, um, people people use the word Kosher about um, about things that don't are not necessarily um, things in the Torah. Can somebody give an example? I, I see people nodding. <laughs> Aside from sort of displaying that's not kosher, you also hear people talking about, recently, I hear people talking about um, fair employment practices um, and attaching a sort of a kashrut label to employment practices that are fair as opposed to the ones that aren't fair being non-kosher. I've heard people say, and this is sort of more like Rove Cook, that um, if a a certain slaughterhouse is not treating the animals humanely, then that slaughterhouse should be considered not kosher. Um, And that we're using, we're sort of extending the idea of kosher to anything that is um, sort of ethical. Um, and, and I wonder if that is connected to these new explanations that talk about kashrut as just being sort of something to teach us ethics, to teach us self-restraint, to something that doesn't have to do with the specific things that are mutar or asur. That Shadal says, oh, don't worry about which things are okay and which things aren't okay. Um, and if that's sort of the next step of that is these explanations that you know, really, say anything that is okay ethically is kosher, and, and all of these things that are not okay ethically are not kosher. Sharon, did you want to say something? It's on the news. When they, they said that our country
1: is kosher. They said that they not kosher at all. Right. They had to come up with, with the police when they the person was
0: arrested, and the, 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 the whole arrest was an unkosher thing because. Right, so also the word kosher has entered our sort of sling as just being um, something that's right, um, that's ethically right, as opposed to something that's ethically wrong. Yeah? Oh, oh, well that's also, I mean the word kosher does appear all over rabbinic literature just to mean something that is, um, that is legitimate. Right, well that, that I think is grounded in the sources, though. Um, and speaking of the mikvah ladies, um, let's move on. Um, the next thing I want to look at is Nida, which is very, I think very instructive to look at Nida right after we look at Kashrut, because there are some very obvious similarities between um, the laws of Kashrut and the laws of Nida. They're in fact even in the same section of the Shulchan Aruch. Um, the sort of main code of Jewish law, has both kashrut and nida in Yore Deya, in the same section, um, because they are both laws that have to do with, first of all, the key word in nida, just like the key word in kashrut, is going to be tamay, um, and, and they are laws that have to do with sort of holding back, um, not partaking in certain physical pleasures, um, And we're going to see that in a lot of ways the development of the explanations about nida is very, it's going to be very similar to the development that we saw in Kashrut. Um, But there are also going to be some significant differences. Um, So let's let's take a look first at, uh, oh just quickly, just a background. Basically the laws of nida as they appear in, maybe let's as they appear in the Torah, are a little bit different from how they're observed nowadays. So in the Torah, there are many kinds of impurity, many many things that incur physical impurity. Having your period is one of them, um, or having a baby is one of them. But also being a leper, being um, a man having a seminal emission, being touching a dead body, any of those things incur tuma. After the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, um, the Pretty much every other kind of personal impurity fell out of practice. Um, but the laws of Nida remained, partly because aside from them being laws about personal impurity, they are also laws that govern um, the, um, the sexual taboos, and the sexual taboos remain. Um, so if you look at the sukim in the Torah, there are two different places that the laws of Nida appear. First of all, they appear among a list of a whole bunch of personal impurities and that's what you have in chapter 15. I'll just read some of it. When a woman has a discharge, which is blood from her body, shall remain in her impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And there's a list even of all of sort of the, the transmission of this physical impurity. Everything she lies on becomes impure. Everything she sits on becomes impure. To the point of, if you look at um, verse 24 later on, ish otah yamim itma if a man sleeps with a woman who's in nida, her nida status gets transmitted to him, he becomes impure for seven days and everything that he lies upon becomes impure. Um, so that this is so just the, the general laws of tumah that it's something that is communicable, that if she touches another item, that becomes tame, and then if somebody else sits on it, they may have a problem also. Um, on the other hand, the laws of niẓa appear in the list of the sexual prohibitions um, along with not sleeping with your sister um, and various others. You have in um, chapter 18 and chapter 20, um, which are the two lists of the, um, the sexual prohibitions, the Elisha beniẓa tumata matah lo galot that's um, don't come near a woman during her period of uncleanness to uncover her nakedness, and again in chapter 20 interesting word if a man lies with a woman who is sick who is infirm so he uncovers her nakedness and he lays bare her flow and she's exposing her blood and so both of them should be cut off um, so, so this prohibition of Nida is both kind of her having this physical status of um, Tuma, and nowadays the whole communicable aspect of it is no longer in effect that a Nida can in a chair without us worrying about the chair, but the aspect of her relationship with her husband um, still remains, that the husband, that a man is not allowed to sleep with a woman who is in and then there is a list of um, rabbinically added prohibitions that the husband and wife are also not supposed to touch each other and to be naked in front of each other and a whole list of other things that are seen to sort of promote affection between them. Um, yeah? Mm, maybe <laughs> could be interesting points. Um, okay, so uh, so we know that the nita is sort of listed in the context of other um, other things that are impure. So obviously she's sort of listed as someone who has this impurity, but it's not necessarily a stigma because. You know, there's sort of all these different things that have physical impurities in the Torah, right? Someone who touches a dead body, there's not necessarily anything gross about that person, um, but they have this physical impurity about them. Um, There is this language of dava, which is a little bit, sounds like a little bit more that she's sort of sickly um, while she has her um, period. Um, The Talmud, um, let's, let's read some of these sources in the Talmud where I think that there are sort of, two different views of how we should see this um, this time period in a woman's life. Yeah? It says, pardon me? Oh, um, you're looking at the end of verse 21?
1: Um,
0: oh, okay. So that's Okay, so that's about the sort of the communic. Okay, so that's about sort of the communicable aspect of her impurity that if she um, if she touches something if she lies on something and then someone else touches that bed that she lay on, then that someone else is impure until the evening. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is transferred, but it's not transferred away from her. It's just spread. Oh, yeah, no. It, it's in masculine. Yitzma adha'ere. Just, just that guy is impure until the evening. Um, somebody want to read um, source four um, from the Talmud? Go for it. Um, I'll Great, thanks. I'm
1: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, If a menstruous woman comes between two men, beginning of the she one
0: Okay. Um, What kind of view of the menstruous woman is assessed in this part, in this little paragraph in the Talmud? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um. She's she's dangerous. She is scary. She is one might say if we're comparing her to sort of the Kashrut things that we saw, gross. Um, that, that there is something actually sort of inherently wrong with her um, during the time that she is Anita. Um, on the other hand, we have Gemara number, we have source number five. Someone want to just read source number five? Go for it. Oh, Hayar Rabbi Meir. You want to translate? Do you want to read the translation or? Okay. Um, what's sort of the, the reason for um, the laws of Nida according to this one? Prevent boredom. Prevent yeah. boredom. What, what else did anyone say? Make Absence makes the heart, the heart grow fonder. Um, okay. Right, yeah, maybe. Um, so, psychologically beneficial. Yeah. Um, according to this, is there sort of anything inherently wrong with a woman who has her periods? Not necessarily.
1: Except there's something better that I could tell her husband. Oh right.
0: <laughs> the woman who's not Anita, there might be something wrong with according to this. He might get sick of her, um, just because he's so overly familiar with her, but the woman who's Anita seems quite lovely. Um, and he is sort of thinking about her. Um, there is Yeah. Okay, good point. And, and I think what you're pointing out is that these two don't necessarily contradict each other. That you could say that a woman who's having her period is gross, but in addition to that, why did God choose to make a woman gross? For seven days out of every month. Oh, because that way the husband will have a time when he separates from his wife, and then he'll grow fonder. His heart will grow fonder when they get back together. Yeah. Okay. So, um, right. So we will, and we will talk about that more. The idea that this does help marriages.
1: yeah
0: okay right so then we get all of these um, somewhat <laughs> somewhat disturbing imagery that people like to use um, but Okay, I, I do th- find it interesting actually that you just use the same kind of um, patriarchal language that the Gemara uses. Well, one of the things that's interesting, one of you, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this Gemara is that it does not um, present this as being about strengthening a marriage. It presents it as about really something that is for the benefit of the man. Um, for th- sorry, for the benefit of the man, um, that he will get sick of his wife, um, but if she is Anita, then he will find her attractive afterwards. There isn't really any sense of her getting bored in marriage or her finding him attractive or not attractive. It's really about the way that he relates to this object of his, which is his wife. Yes, Susan? Yeah,
1: all how she's
0: right. Right. Somehow it's your fault anyway. Um, so, so there is a one, there is an imbalance to it, which is you're saying inherent in the system. Since it's something that's happening in the woman's body, then it is going to be imbalanced in some way or other. It will be imbalanced. Um, but as we pointed out, these sources are definitely imbalanced towards sort of the man as the subject experiencing the woman as the object. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Um, usually not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything at all about the fact that Hashem says, leave me alone instead of you having to say, I have cramps, I feel like really lousy. leave me alone, that Hashem says it and you don't have to say it, and that Hashem says it and says, leave her alone, you don't have to turn her away. I do not feel
0: Um. Not in the Gemara. You may find that in the 20th century stuff. And that's, may, maybe we should actually go on and look at the...
1: <laughs> so, so we'll see. Um,
0: so, so I'm actually going to ask you to um, to take a look at some of these um, sources in Chabad. So, let me just warn you, because I gave you actually like some really long ones here. Um, so, the Tanhuma is short. The Ramban is really long, but it's interesting. So, you may want to read all of it. Um, the Ravad or the Ravid fondly known in some circles, um, is also also kind of, you may be able to skim through him pretty quickly. Um, and then the contemporary explanations, you don't need to do with your chavritas, if you're done with everything else, you can do them, otherwise you can wait and we'll talk about them together. So you can look at the chanchuma and the ramban and the Um and, and take, I don't know, ten minutes or maybe a little more if you need it. Oh, sure. So the Tanchuma, it's very hard to give a date. Um, It probably has some very old material in it, Um, but um, generally the sort of final composition of it is thought to be somewhere like 9th century. Um, Um, 9th. 9th. The Ramban, Nachmanides, um, is um, 13th century. Um, 13th century? Yes. Um, and the rivet is around the same time as the Ramban. Um Rav Abraham ben David. Um, he's in the Ravid is in Provence, and the Ramban is in um, Spain. Yeah, around. All right. Let's let's start with the Tanhumah. Okay. According to what's what's the reason for Hilchot Nida according to the Tanhumah? Right, because of Adam and Eve, um, if I use Christian language, I would say because of original sin. Um, if I wanted to use um, contemporary slang, I would say this is the closest we get to saying that um, Nida is the curse. Um, that Eve is, um, that, um, that this is all about atonement for um, Eve's sin. What was Eve's sin according to this? She spilled Adam's blood. What where where, where did Eve spill Adam's blood? She death. Yes. Right. So that's that's what it's referring to is the fact that she caused Adam to sin and that Adam's sin then um, then caused death to enter the world. So therefore she spilled Adam's blood. She also spilled her own, but anyway. Um, so so because she spilled Adam's blood, we're told he Zama. therefore, her own blood should also be spilled um, as a punishment. And it, did you notice the little play on words in the proof text? Yeah. The the proof text um, is shofech dam haadam baadam One who literally one who spills the blood of a person um, should have his own blood spilled. Um, but I think they're reading it as shofech dam haadam, the one who spills the blood of adam of Adam, um, their own blood will be spilled. Um, and therefore she should keep the laws of nida um, because nida has to do with blood, and that will atone for her. Um, for her, for her blood spilling. This is, this is actually um, an interpretation of the um, Gemara that talks about women dying in childbirth if they don't observe nida, chala, and candle lighting. And for each one, it reads it as being about atoning for original sin, that she spilled the blood of Adam. She um, destroyed Adam, who was considered the chala of the world. She put out the candle of Adam's, extinguished the candle of Adam's soul, um, and that's why she needs to then um, observe the laws having to do with blood, having to do with bread, and having to do with um, candles. Um, so so here this is her atonement, this is her punishment, basically, um, or, or I, guess, I guess to be exact this is her way of protecting herself from punishment, but it does kind of sound like it's saying that um, the laws of Nida are sort of a punishment and a curse. Um, Speaking of which, we have the Ramban. Um, so the Ramban says a lot, but what in the Ramban, in what the Ramban says is actually the reason for why you're supposed to detail nida? There's something that he says is sort of the actual term He says, and, and that's actually something very short and simple, and then he says a lot of other things. What, what, what does he think is the actual reason behind a man not being allowed to sleep with a nida? Yes, exactly. Um, because he says, um, this is right at the beginning, the Torah prohibits sex with a because of the reason that I mentioned, that the Torah permitted sexual intercourse only for the sake of procreation. Where
1: do we get that? Um, we
0: don't. Um. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't say it anywhere, and um, there are plenty of things that um, sort of actually imply the opposites. Um, the fact that sexual relations are permitted with uh, pregnant women, elderly women, um, etc., cetera, um, means that in general we really don't hold by that, but the Ramban did. Or he says he does here anyway. Um, and he says that a woman who is a um can't get pregnant. Um, and then he goes on um, if he if he could have said that in um, sort of two or three lines, what's the purpose of the rest of the Ramban's explanation of the nida?
1: <laughs> okay, so first of all, <laughs> if
0: uh, I I think that you you really have a point that if if you're just gonna say the reason. Um, the reason that a man isn't allowed to sleep with Anita is because only procreative sex is permitted. That's fine, but that that's no fun. Um, that's that's you know, that that would still lead people to be tempted. If you read the rest of Ramban's explanation, you're not gonna be If you, the man. Read the rest of Ramban's explanation. You will not be tempted. Not only will you not be tempted to to transgress the biblical prohibition of sleeping with Anita but you will hopefully not even be tempted to transgress the rabbinic prohibitions of touching her, being alone with her, any, anything um, anything having to do with bringing special closeness between you um, because really the Ramban is explaining why you really shouldn't want to um, be with a woman who is Anita. Um, where is? says a whole bunch of things about um, sort of the disgusting or dangerous nature of Anita um, the, the fact that when she looks in the mirror, um, drops of blood appear on the mirror. Um, the fact that um, she um, can her, she has this contagious impurity that can sort of do bad things to a man who comes too close to her. That she's like a leper. Um, now, Now where... Where is, where does he get all of this knowledge? According to this, um, he actually says where where all of this information comes from.
1: Doctors,
0: um, the Rambam is giving a contemporary scientific explanation for why a man should stay away from Nida, um, The Rambam, in a lot of ways, reminds me of the Rambam and the Rashbam, um, also in the Middle Ages, talking about. Saying our medical knowledge at this point is that these animals are gross and make you sick. The Ramban is saying our medical knowledge at this point is that the Niza is gross and makes you sick. Um, this is a this is a medical explanation. This is also it's interesting. I think that most of the women um, in this room, when they read the Ramban right now, and likely um, likely most of the men also um, read this and said, oh my gosh, I I, I don't like this, I, I don't like the idea of NIDA. You know, this. I think this nowadays has the power to sort of turn people off of NIDA, but the, the reason that the Ramban is saying this is because this is what's going to get people interested in observing NIDA. Well, look at this, there's current medical information that tells us that a woman who has her period is dangerous and is disgusting, um, so we this better information, and we better stay away from women who need us. So it's even it's even kind of an apologetic in his own time, and I think that's also why he just talks along long. After giving the explanation, why you shouldn't, then he goes on for a long time, because he's trying, even though it's not convincing to us, it's not attractive to us, he is trying to, us. He is trying to attract. Um, and so he's really detail, um, sort of the medicine of it, the science of it, that's sort of in the first paragraph where you have all of this stuff about the blood of the woman that creates the, the fetus, um, that's, um, that the child is created out of the woman's blood, but the woman's blood during her peri- the time of her period is less healthy blood than the woman's blood during the time of outside her period. And actually, there's a lot more of that that I didn't even quote where he really goes on about um, the different illnesses that a fetus will have if it's considered
1: during the time of Nida.
0: Um, so, so he's really trying to give a very medicalized explanation and to give an explanation that's, that's going to be attractive, even if it doesn't seem that way to us. Um, what did you think of the Riven? is better than the Ramban about the Ravens. A woman who is Anita. There isn't really anything particularly unusual about her, but just like there are rules about everything else, so there are rules about Anita. It's just part of the whole system.
1: Um,
0: yeah, it's boundaries. Okay, good. Yeah. Yes. I think so also. Um, I think. I think in. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways the rivet is actually very ahead of his time in this um, in this explanation here because he really is sort of giving the same kind of explanation that the Shadal gave. The idea that, that this is really just about sort of the value of having boundaries, the value of sort of having self-control that comes from having boundaries in all areas. Also, just just the fact that he's taking such a broad view is really very impressive, that he's not trying to find sort of a detailed explanation of every single aspect of Niza, but he's saying, you know, look at the big picture. The big picture is that God wants us to have boundaries in every area of our lives, including, and Nida is part of that big picture. What do we care about the specific details? I could practically hear him saying if he were Shadal. Um, it doesn't matter whether this particular thing is prohibited or that particular thing, but in every area of a person's life, there are boundaries, and Nida is part of that. Um, yeah? Yeah? Yes. Yeah, no, nothing bad at all. In fact, the woman is described as um, part of Colmat's Not haadam, as all of the gifts that are given to men. Um, what is so? That's what's modern about the ravid. What is not modern about the raivid? Um, I mean, this is, I think, very similar to. Um, to the Gemara, to the Gemara that we signed source number five, in that there's nothing wrong with the woman. She is a perfectly good object. Um, she, you know, she is an object. She's like his field and like his animals and like his, um, you know, all of these different things that he owns. Um, and there's nothing wrong with her. She's she's not gross. But it is very much still um, sort of this subject-object relationship in which the man sort of has limits in how he relates to his wife. Um, I actually, um, because I I actually do think that this rivet is very. um, I I think it's a very interesting rivet. I think that he really is sort of saying something that is very thoughtful. And I actually have taught this to high school students. But what I do when I teach it to high school students don't tell them. Is, I translate it all gender neutral. Um, God, um, I say, you know, God has given many gifts to humans. Um, and one of the gifts that God has given to humans is the gift of marriage. Um, and um, I, I, I guess that puts me really on this page um, of being one of the um, people who composes apologetics and who tries to, um, to read some of the older sources as saying something that is a little Equal between the sexes, than it really is saying. Um, so then we have the contemporary explanations for NIDA. Um Why do we need contemporary explanations for Niza? Why can't we just use the Ramban and the right? <laughs> so I guess, so I guess I don't have to answer that. It's. Any 20th century person, 21st century person, why um, these explanations are just not going to speak to—they're not going to speak to modern men. They're certainly not going to speak to modern women, who are the ones who are actually going to be um, observing these laws. Um, and so, in—and these are all these are three late 20th century works um, that all are trying to sort of justify the laws of Nida and really, I think, trying to convince people, that the laws of Niza are good. Um, the first one by Moshe Meiselman, Jewish Women in Jewish Law, was actually composed basically as a sort of answer to the feminists. Um, that's sort of uh, taking apart all of the feminist critiques of Judaism and sort of saying, look, Judaism is not actually a sexist religion and women should not feel demeaned in any way by Judaism. That was really the purpose of Rabbi Meiselman's composition and um, you can see it throughout the book that he'll he'll actually ex- explicitly say throughout the book, the feminists say this and this is why it's wrong. Um, so, um, does someone want to read um, what Rabbi Meiselman has to say about Hilkot Nida? Okay, right, he does say that. Um Somebody want to read that whole paragraph? Go for it. Furthermore, the husband is required to relate to the wife for at least 12 days a month in an atmosphere that describes
1: any sexual context. He must learn to relate to
0: Love and pure purity. Humanize and elevate sex by labeling the partners to relate to each other as people rather than Okay, great. Um so first of all, um I'm just gonna wait for that. Okay. Um so um a couple of things that are interesting in Meiselman's um in, in this paragraph of Meiselman's. Um, first of all, how does he, how does he describe um, the laws of Niza? What's his terminology? Or he doesn't say the laws of Niza, what does he say? The laws of family purity, and that's something that you'll notice um, throughout a lot of modern sources, is that instead of talking about the laws of Nida, of sort of the woman who has her period, it turns into something that is mutual, that is sort of something that the family does together. This is about family purity, Um, so the language becomes a language of mutuality. Um, Second of all... um, the explanation is sort of exactly the opposite of everything that we saw that sort of objectified sort of the exact point of hilchot Nida is that a woman should not be treated as an object. Um, you know, the Ravid presents her as sort of the object, the gift that is given to man. The Gemara presents her as someone who the man will sort of get sick of and so she needs to sort of go away for a bit. Um, But he says that this is really the whole purpose of Hilchot Nida is so that she isn't treated like a sex object and also that they are partners, they're relating to each other, that everything is sort of in this language of he starts with the language of the husband relating to his wife that he's not treating her as a sex object Um, but then it turns also into this language of mutuality at the end that they humanize and elevate sex by enabling the partners to relate to each other as people rather than a sex object. This is actually something that is a two-way street, according to Meiselman. that there's also, you know, the woman might think of her husband that way, and so therefore Hilchot Nida really renews the relationship on both ends and sort of causes each of them to realize that the other has value, not just as a sex object, but also as a person. Um, The second part I brought just for fun. The laws of nida enrich the relationship between husband and wife. They were not meant to make women feel taboo or unclean. The halakha casts no aspersions on the physical state of menstruation. If anything, the laws of nida make it possible for women to be valued as a person rather than as a mere sex object. No knowledgeable Jew for whom these laws are a part of everyday life has ever viewed them as a means of ostracizing women, condemning them, or destroying their (laughs) self-esteem. So clearly he had not read the Ramban or the Gemara, um, but... Yeah, no,
1: he
0: is not a fan of feminists. Um, but, but one thing that is interesting is that this, this claim that Rabbi Meiselman is making here is actually something that he's not the only one who makes this claim that, um, basically that not only will modern people say that the laws of Nida are about not treating women as objects, but they will actually deny that anyone has ever said that a woman who is a Nida is gross, that a woman who is a Nida is scary, any of the things that used to be said in the Middle Ages are viewed as sort of that 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 sort of put it under the wraps and let's not talk about it. It never happened. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, That's supposed to be written down. We have had any problems if we hadn't written these things down. Would we be having all these discussions we hadn't written the tenor down, that it had not always been passed on orally? Would we have come up with the same problems? If reporting people that have written things down that were supposedly supposed to be passed on orally, wouldn't it have changed like the te- like playing telephone and we wouldn't have the
0: same problems we developed? I think I. Uh, my sense would be no, but I think it's hard to speculate about something that's been a historical fact for so long, you know, like I think we're just talking about a whole different progression of history, and I, I think it's just, it's, it's a lot to speculate on. Um, Rabbi Lam, I, I think I'm not going to read out loud, but one of the reasons that I brought it is that he really also talks, just uses a language of mutuality, that this is about both the husband and the wife, and that this is about sort of the relationship. Again, again, this idea of sort of—we're not talking about Hilchot Nida now. We're talking about family purity. We're talking about something that is a relationship between, enhancing a relationship between a husband and a wife who are two equals. Um, so this is this had to happen, right? In order to make Hilchot Nida work for modern people, the explanations had to take into account the fact that the relationships between men and women now are relationships of equals, hopefully, and are, you know, that the goal is, in marriage, is to have sort of a loving relationship. Um, and so, so the explanations of NIDA had to sort of address that. Um, but one thing that is interesting is that there is sort of a slight change, one could say, in the actual way that Nidza is practiced, that I think um, comes out of this new rhetoric about NIDA. And if you take a look at this last um, Guide to Jewish Family Laws, source 11, and this is not unique. I've seen this in a few different guides to, um, guides to family purity. Um, he says, a question is often asked, how can a husband and wife express love during the Nida period when they cannot touch? The answer, they will discover new ways to convey their love. A wistful glance, a reflective thought, or a favor to ease each other's everyday tasks are also tender expressions of love. They will learn that silence and self-restraint are often more eloquent than kisses and caresses. They may even develop new interests and hobbies that they can share with each other during the Nida period. The rational expressions of love will outlast the physical aspects and truly deepen their love and commitment to each other and their beliefs. According to Shostak and according to many of these other guides, what is supposed to be going on between a husband and wife during the time that she is a Nida? What? Definitely talking. They should definitely be talking to each other. What, what else is supposed to be going on in their relationship? Spending time together, right? One of the other guides that I read, don't plan late night meetings when, during the time of nida. Spend lots of time together. Make sure that you're not like spending less time together. Bonding. Building their relationship. Um, and this is interesting if you think back to the earlier sources. If you think back to the Ramban, who says that a woman who is a Nida is like a viper who kills with its gaze, then he's probably not going to suggest that you have wistful glances during the time of Nida. But um, that, that I think that the idea of the, the Nida period being a time of sort of bonding, of sort of creating this, deepening your relationship, is. An innovative idea, and is suggesting practices that that I think Ramban and and maybe all of the maybe also the Gemara really been upset about um, would have really been horrified about that that a husband and wife should be sort of exchanging these tender affectionate moments during the time of nida. The time of nida was a time of staying away from each other, a time of sort of possible fear of ...who is sort of a little bit dangerous, but definitely just sort of abhorrence of, you know, Nida from the, even just the word Nida, somebody who's sort of pushed away, sort of a pariah, and now um, the time of Nida becomes, in this new rhetoric, becomes sort of this special time of a husband and wife building a relationship with each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen it, like, throughout Guides to Jewish Life. I've also heard it a lot in sort of the, um, that when people are giving kind of explanations. I, I mean, I teach teenagers, so I hear it when people are talking to teenagers uh, um, about the laws of Nida. Um, I hear it prevalently that, um, you know, that the time of Nida is a time of sort of going beyond the physical and, you um, getting a sort of, you know, relating to each other on an intellectual level and on an emotional level, giving each other emotional support without touching. Um, I, I hear it a lot. Um, and, and I and I do think it is new, and I think it's sort of a case where we can see a little bit of sort of new rhetoric leading also to new practice a bit. Um, yeah? Just sort of question. If, if your
1: mother
0: that question with would, would
1: Kind of
0: so, well, not <coughs> <so> <coughs> really I don't know if my grandmother would have My mother read Norman lamb before she got married uh, and um, <laughs> I'm young sorry
1: um, So I'm not
0: sure exactly when this change happened. Yeah. I'm not sure when people started talking like this about the time mm-hmm. of Nida. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I I just had his sixth edition, which was published in 1987, so I wasn't able to get his... I, I didn't put down the first publication date. When was it published? Do you know? Okay. Also, my mother got married in the 70s, and she had the older one. Yeah?
1: Oh, okay.
0: I, I, I can't tell you. Do you know? I, I don't know, but I, I think that what he says is very, is very typical. I think that that his particular expression is sort of. I thought, it, I thought it was well put, so I brought that one. But I think it's very typical of what you'll find in modern guides. Maybe not that particular one, but something that says the same thing. Yeah.
1: That sounds right.
0: Okay. Um, okay, so the last thing. Oh, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Um, good points. Um, Um, So these are all men. You will find books written by women that say the same thing. Um, Okay, the last thing that I want to look at is um, an example of, sort of a, this is less of it, sort of, Kashrut and Nida are major areas of Jewish law, are major mitzvot. What I want to look at is something a lot smaller. Particular issue. Um, the reason that I want to look at this is because I think that the rhetoric that has come up from this has been very interesting, and also because I have a very interesting example of what this rhetoric can lead to, um, that may be a little bit surprising. So, uh, so this is sort of going from sort of the larger topics into something smaller, um, but I think that we will be able to sort of find find this useful also. Um, I, I call this women in the synagogue, really specifically what I'm talking about is kind of women's exclusion from um, counting in a minion, from reading Torah. Um, I actually started with a source in the Gemara um, that says, Tanu Rabbanan hakol olim shiva b'afilu katan isha. The Gemara says that anyone can be one of the seven people who read the Torah on Shabbat including that, that children and women can be part of that, that seven. However, the rabbi said that the woman should not read Torah because of kibod ha-tibor, because of the dignity of the congregation. Um, and I brought the next source just to sort of illustrate what kibod ha sibur the dignity of the congregation, meant, um, because the next source has... Um, discussion of whether a child who is kind of dressed in, like, rags or um, clothing that has holes in it can read the Torah. Um, Can a child dressed, poorly dressed, dressed in, you know, rags, clothing with holes, read from the Torah? Um, The reason that they're asking specifically about a child is because if an adult were to be dressed withhold, then you'd have a problem of, um, of erva, of this being sort of an indecent exposure kind of thing. But if it's a child, then you're less worried about um, sort of there being any erotic nature to him being exposed. Um, so that's why they're asking about that. So he says, well, you know, why didn't you ask me about a child who's naked if you're not worried about um, sort of exposure, then let's ask about that. And let's actually draw a parallel between the pocheach and the Arum. Arum might why can't a child who is naked read from the Torah? Mishum kibod Tibur? Because that would just not be dignified. Hakanami, so here too, the reason that a child with holes in his clothing can't read from the Torah is because of the dignity of the congregation. So I think there are two things that we can sort of figure out about dignity of the congregation from this source. First of all, what is the what is Kavod Tsibur not about? Um, okay, it's not about competence. It's also, what else is it not about? If the source is about a katan procheach, it's specifically about a child who's not wearing clothes.
1: Um,
0: okay, so so, that, so that's what Hillary said, but I think there is another thing also, which is, it's not about sexuality. Because we're specifically asking about a child... Any issues of sexuality, any issues of indecent exposure. So this is not about that. It's not about saying that the reason that a woman can't read in public is because um, she's sort of too sexually enticing. Um, um, okay, but that doesn't seem to be what the focus is. And so what can we say that Kaboda Tibur actually is about? It's not about sexuality. What what does it seem to be about? Pardon me. Sorry?
1: Showing up, the men.
0: Showing up the men and not necessarily this, because um, the child, the child who's properly dressed is allowed oh, to, read yeah, to, to read the
1: Torah.
0: But we are allowing a child to read the Torah as long as he's properly dressed. Yeah, it's really just about propriety. Yeah, it's about what's like meshlech, and basically what we're saying is that you know. There's just a sense of propriety that is violated when a child who is naked or who is wearing rags gets up and reads the Torah. And if we apply that to the previous Gemara, that's the sense of propriety that is being violated when a woman reads the Torah. But that's that's like putting up somebody who's dressed in rags. That's like putting up somebody who's naked. But it's not sexually enticing. It's not necessarily insulting. But it's just, it's just like, it's not done. It's not proper. It's just—it's not dignified, really, literally. That, that, that seems to be what it is. That—that's just—you know—you don't show up in rags. You don't put up a woman. Um, yeah. What the oh. So Tannur Banana is introducing—is um, introducing everything that comes after it. That it's basically the introduction to a brighta um, which is a text from the period of the Mishnah, um, and so then the first part is kind of stated anonymously, and then they say, "But the Rabbi said." Um, there, there is, I think, another reason that, that may have to do with this that um, I'm trying to illustrate, but I, I think is pretty clear from the Mishnayot in Horayot. Um, the Mishnayot at the end of Horayot are setting up some hierarchies of what is Kodem. Kodaim can mean either to sort of come first just chronologically. I'm trying to figure out um, whether I should say Musaf first or Mincha first because I have waited until the afternoon and now I don't know what to say first. That can be Kodem, what comes first. Um, Kodim can also mean to take precedence. That I can only I only have money for either Shabbos candles or Kiddush wine, so which one should I spend my money on? Um, so it can be about sort of a conflict of interest or just about which one should you do first. Um, and so so he says, he, he presents two principles in Mishnah Vav. First of all, anything that's sort of more regular than something else comes first, which is a principle that is usually used about timing, that you normally do the thing that is more regular before the thing that is less regular. Um ...and also, anything or anyone who is more holy than anything or anyone else comes first. And that is usually more in the sense of taking precedence. Um, If you take a look at Mishnah... These are cows that are sacrificed um, when... No, 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 no. These are, these are cows that are sacrificed when um, one of these people um, committed a sin, and so they have to, there's a sort of sin offering for them, and so which cow comes first? We don't need to worry about the cows so much. So let's go straight to the men and women. Um, we did cows already on the first Um, um So, um, So there's a discussion of who comes first between men and women when there is a conflict between doing something for a man and doing something for a woman and the following laws are stated ha'ish kodem la'isha la'cha'yot u'ra'shi va'vada a man comes before a woman when it comes to saving lives right two people are drowning in a river save the man first ulachi va'vada and if you have two lost objects and um, you need to figure out which one to return which one to return first um, you should return it to the man first ha'ish kodem la likhtoot ulahu beit be'ta shavi um, but a woman comes before a man to dress her, meaning if you have a man and a woman who are both naked, and saying, clothe me, you clothe the woman first. And also, if you have a man and a woman who are in prison, um, who are sort of in captivity, then you save the woman first. However, But if both of them will be forced into degrading acts, meaning sexual acts, then the man will take precedence. So let's start from the end and go back to the beginning. Um, If both of them will be forced to do degrading sexual acts, then why would you save the man before the woman? Miriam? Yeah: Yeah, so I, I think that the second one is what's going on at the end of this mission. I think when we're talking about both being forced to do degrading sexual acts, then we think that um, rape of a man, homosexual rape of a man is worse than um, heterosexual rape of a woman. So in that case, we'll save the man first because what he is up against is going to be worse than what she is up against.)
1: Um,
0: um okay. But but I think that they are seeing it as more 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 of a horrible and traumatic I think that is how they see it. Well well now let's go now what about okay, okay.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Hold off on the deciding exactly what's going on in Mishnah. But let's say there is a general view um, in the Talmud that um, homosexual rape is something that you're more, you're going to be more upset about. That, that we as a society are going to be more concerned with protecting people from homosexual rape than we are with protecting women from rape. Not significantly more concerned. But if those are the two choices, you can only do one. We're going to save the man from homosexual rape. How come in the middle case? How come a woman comes before a man? or being saved from captivity? Okay, Tania stuff is the clothing. What about the being saved from captivity?
1: Well, the, the,
0: the potential, the potential right. But in general, unless we're in the case this at the end of the Mishnah, in general we're going to assume that when a man is taken into captivity, he's not going to be raped, and when a woman is taken into captivity, she is going to be raped. So normally, since the woman has a higher chance of being raped, we're going to save the woman before the man. Okay, so both of those two, um, there seems to be a reason that has to do specifically with, um, with their sort of, their own different experiences as a man and as a woman. But what about the first case? Why does a man come before a woman to have his life saved or to have a lost object returned to him? What point is that illustrating? I
1: was just looking financially. He's the really self-support for the entire family. So
0: a the, obey uh, will all be lost without Um, okay. Um, possibly. But
1: I think obviously women weren't
0: allowed to understand, so I think that's um right. But still he would be sort of um I mean I, I think I think that the the other way to read this is that um that this is, um, you know, something in this Mishnah needs to be explaining the principle that was in the previous Mishnah. And I think that the first line in the Mishnah is the one that explains that. That when it comes to saving lives, there is no difference between saving a man's life and saving a woman's life. It's not worse for a woman to die than it is for a man to die. But I think this is actually an example of that we are that I think that this is reading it as that a man is holier than a woman because then if you take a look it does go on in Mishnah to then give a further hierarchy We've, we're done with men and women now let's give a further hierarchy of a Kohen comes before a lady, a lady before a Yisrael a Yisrael comes before a Mamzer there it goes on down the list of sort of social status mom that a natin, a natin, comes before a Ger, a Ger comes before a etc. I don't remember but um, various kinds of um, people whose um, lineage are um, a little bit sketchy um, so so, so the, these Mishnayot are about establishing a hierarchy and it seems to me that the hierarchy that we're establishing is that a man is holier than a woman. Um, if you take a look at source 4 um, this is much later than the other sources that I just gave you. The other sources are Gemara and Mishnah. Source four is the Avnei Nazar, writing in Poland in the 19th century. Um, and the Avnei Nazar is, asked, is being asked a question about um, whether a shul, a shul, people from a shul are asking a question about whether they can um, take apart sort of, what's the word for not deconstruct, but um, destroy part of uh, the men's section, destroy part of their existing shul in order to build a women's section. The shul currently has no women's section and they want to sort of take apart part of the men's section in order to build a women's section. And he says v'nei she has la so." oh and sort of let me just explain the the problem, the halachic problem that they're up against is that generally you're not supposed to destroy a shul um, unless the only reason that you could possibly destroy a shul is to build something that is equally or more holy. And he says, Um, In our case, the, the new thing that you're trying to build, the positive thing that you're trying to create, is a women's section, and a women's section is of a lower level of holiness than the shul itself, Um, the shul itself meaning the men's section. Um, And therefore he says, I'm not sure if I can really allow you to um, sort of take away from a more serious level of holiness, which is the men's section, in order to build something that is a lower level of holiness, which is the women's section. What I want you to see here is that there seems to be an idea in the classical text and even just a couple centuries ago an idea that women actually are less holy than men and that that might be the reason that it's sort of just not dignified to have women reading the Torah because women are actually less holy. Now, (laughs) yeah? Okay, right, there, there are, all the, all the cool stuff is happening in the men's section, um, so maybe it's just because the cool stuff is happening there, um, possibly, definitely, possibly, um, and possibly you could read the other source a different way, but I, I think, I think there that it is a very reasonable way to read the classical sources to say that the classical sources imply that women are on a lower level of holiness than men, yeah. Okay, definitely. Now let me ask you a question. The most classic apologetic of all, um, when women are asked why are we not obligated to do these mitzvot, what's kind of the classic apologetic that is given for why women are obligated to do fewer mitzvot than men? A higher spiritual level. Um, And this so this is definitely an innovation, the idea that women are on a higher spiritual level. But but what I wanted to show here is that it may not just be an innovation, but it may also be exactly the opposite of what the classical sources say. Um, and that's why when Rabbi Meiselman says that... Um, whatever. I, I, I'm not even sure that I know what exactly he's saying here, but yeah. the inner dimension of striving is the essence of the Jewish heroic act, and woman was enjoined to develop this trait of personality to its higher decree, degree, thus she was assigned the private role while man is assigned the public role. In the Jewish view, to be hidden from public view does not imply inferiority. So she, her job is to develop the essence of the Jewish heroic act. Um, but she, she's on this very high spiritual level and so she doesn't have a public role because of that, and that's why this is actually in a section about women and prayer. That's why she's not counted as a minion. That's why she doesn't um, sort of do any of the um, any of the stuff that happens in Shul for reading or <laughs> reading davening or anything like that. Is because she has this other very crucial spiritual role. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> Um, so first of all are we equating spirituality are you equating it with kedushah or not okay because kedushah right because kedushah is the Torah tells us that God is kadosh and that we want to be kadosh like God right so then the question of whether whether spirituality is really equal to Kiddushah um, definitely depends on how you define spirituality, and there are as many definitions as there are people um, um, that's definitely a good point, that when we say a spiritual level, we're not always saying the same thing as Kiddushah. The next source that we'll see uses the word Kiddushah, so there we can be pretty sure that we're talking about um, Kiddushah, um, but when we're talking about spirituality, you're right, that is a very slippery term. Yeah. Um, sort of a double-edged sword, bringing in the creation story. On one hand, you, you have sort of the, well, man was created first, so he's better. On the other hand, you have the, well, maybe there's sort of an ascending higher order, you know, from, you know, birds and fish to uh, animals that walk on all fours to man to woman. So, you know, you can read it either way. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's one way. Um, there's also the, the sexist Yiddish joke that the reason the man was created first is because you can't make a mensch out of a woman. So, you know, it goes either way. Um, But, um, so, yeah. Alright, yeah, and I think that I think that he would agree with that, that he's you know, sort of sees a woman as a very powerful person, but behind the scenes. Um, the you know, and then he uses that to justify women not being involved in the synagogue, which, you know, I think some people find attractive and some people don't. Yeah. Well that's kind of an interesting thing about the Avne Nazar is that they're writing him saying we want to build a women's section in our show, like they didn't even have one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so the women level, what, what? Okay, all right. I, I don't want to go too far into this. Let, let's take a look at what the... One thing
1: that she said was that women were Dory that she was taken from the side, not from the head, from the top, but the bottom of the side? was from the sky. Then she said, every inch of the hood and high down the beam
0: So there are two creation narratives, one in which they were created spontaneously at the same time, and one in which the man was created first. Um, okay, so let's take a look at women's level of kidusha. stay away from the word spirituality, um, and let's take a look at women's level of according to the Yigrat Moshe. Um, this is an interesting tshuva of the Yigrat Moshe. This is his tshuva about women's tefillah groups. Um, He was asked about um, women's prayer groups. Um, Ramosha Feinstein, by the way, let me just give a little biography, Um, lived in the United States um, and died in the 1980s, I believe. Um, And so he wrote a lot of very important um, responses about kind of Jewish life in America. Um, People asked him just a lot of things having to do with technology, having to do with um, relationships between um, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed Jews. Just so all kinds of contemporary issues that um, weren't necessarily, you know, not, not the issues that you would find in... Cecil um, and so they asked him about women's tefillah groups and this is his tshuva where he basically comes out against them mainly on the grounds that he believes that the women who are involved in them do not have the right intentions um, but after he kind of explains why he thinks that these groups are inappropriate then he says the following visheni second of all tarikh that aims you gotta know that the reason that I'm telling you that women don't participate in all of these synagogue things is not because women are on a lower level of kiddusha than men because when it comes to kiddushah, women are equal to men so they have the same connection to being obligated to in um, mitzvot. Because we know that the mitzvot were only commanded to people who are holy. The mitzvot were only commanded to the Jews who have holiness. And the mitzvot were commanded to women. The Namru cried the in every pasuk in the Torah that talks about being holy is addressed to both the men and the women. The part that I skipped, just because I wanted it all to fit on this page, um, was because um, the part that the part that I skipped is just a list of all of the psukim that say, you know, Atem Malach <laughs> He just goes through all of these psukim and says every single one of them was addressed to both the men and the women. He talks about how um, it says before one of them, Ko and that there's a Midrash that says the date Yaakov is the women. So he really goes in detail to explain how all of the verses in the Torah that are about Kidusha are equally for men and for women. Every single place where it talks about the holiness of the nation of Israel is always also referring to the women. And then he even has a proof from the outside of the Torah. That women say, you have made us kadosh, you have sanctified us with your commandments every time that women perform a mitzvah that requires that kind of blessing, just like men. And in fact, women say though that Even about the mitzvot that the Torah did not obligate them for. Um, A woman is not technically obligated to um, shake the lulav. Um, however, when an Ashkenazic woman shakes the lulav, she says, So clearly, he says, women are just as holy as men. Um, it just happens to be that women are not obligated in certain mitzvot as a kula, as a leniency. That God, decide, God decided to be lenient to women. And he doesn't even give a reason. He says, God, for whatever the reason, wanted to be lenient and not make women obligated in quite as many mitzvot as Um, men. And that's like I mentioned before. But this is not because there is anything inferior about women. God forbid that you should think that. Um... Yes, yeah, so this is part of his Shiva against women's prayer, but he says you should know this has nothing to do with your level of spirituality. Women are exactly equal to men when it comes to spirituality. So this is this is kind of Moshe presenting his explanation of um, women's exclusion being not about not about holiness, not about any kind of inferiority on the part of women, really not about anything that we saw in the classical sources, Um, but really, you know, women are exactly equal. And it's just, you know, that God, for whatever the reason, we don't even know why, God decided to make women not obligated in some of this stuff, and because women aren't obligated, therefore they're not going to be participating on the same level, but we don't really know why, and it definitely doesn't have to do with women being on a lower spiritual level. the interesting thing about this Rav Moshe Tshuva is where it got quoted recently. Um, I saw this a bunch of years ago when I was reading, um, I was reading a tshuva um, by Rabbi um, Steve Wald. Um, rabbi, Wald is, or rabbi Wald was the rosh the yeshiva of the conservative yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He's a conservative rabbi. And about 10 years ago, he wrote a tshuva about why women should count in a minion. And he quoted this tuba of Rav Moshe Feinstein. Um, now, what Rabbi Wald is arguing in his um, tshuva about women counting in a minyan is he's arguing for a rethinking of the basis upon which people um, do or do not count in a minyan. The, um, the general argument, and the argument that Rav Moshe is definitely going by in his tshuva, is that people who have an obligation in public prayer can count as a minion- in a minyan, who do not have an obligation in public prayer cannot count in a minyan and women do not have an obligation in public prayer so therefore they don't count in a minyan. Um, Rabbi Wald in his tshuva argues that that actually is not the basis upon which we should determine whether someone counts in a minyan or not but rather whether a woman, whether somebody counts in a minyan or not is determined by a concept that he calls Kedusha Yisrael the holiness of B'nai Israel, and he quotes a couple of Rishonim of medieval... Um, commentators who he sees as espousing that concept and I'm just going to take a drink before I read this um, I just have it as like a hand as like a, an off by itself so I don't, I don't know where, where else it is it was published in 1996 um, so um, I so so this is what he says Kaamur has as we said, Hara'abad, is our friend from before, he Israel. He agreed with the understanding of Rabbeinu Tam, a Tosafist, um, that the idea of counting in a minion depends upon having the holiness of the Jewish people on you. Um, so he now has two medieval, two important medievals, the Raivet and Rabbeinu Tam who agree that the minyan is about Kiddusha Yisrael. But now the obvious question that arises is, are women on an equal level of Kidushah to men? You see where this is going? Mishumkach chashuvim ba'od hagaon Moshe Feinstein Zal. And therefore, it's very important to, yes, it's very important to pay attention to the words of Rav Moshe Feinstein, a Blessed Memory, which wrote, and he wrote in one of his last chuvot, I didn't quote the whole thing because we just read it, but he quotes exactly the section that we just read in Rav Moshe's chuvah until the Lomitza griyuta, chas v'shalom. And it is not that women are on a lower level, God forbid. And then he says, Based on Rav Moshe's words, which are completely unambiguous, completely decisive. It is very clear that there is no difference between men and women when it comes to the holiness of Israel, mitzvot the mitzvot, and their equality, um, and they are equal when it comes to being obligated in mitzvot, mashmaut hadavar. And the significance of this particular finding, when we put it together with the understanding of the Ravid and the Rashba that we read beforehand, um, that said that the minion is based on kedusha Israel. Is that every Jewish woman should be able to count in a minion? So I bring this as an interesting example of uh, traditional, traditional explanations. Well, well, not traditional explanations of what happens when you give a non-traditional explanation. Rav Moshe Feinstein went against the thrust of many of the classical sources, and said something that had not been said before, or maybe had said been said in his time period, but had not been said in a time period before his, which was, women are exactly equal to men in terms of their level of holiness. Um, Rav, Moshe's, Rav Moshe's explanation was given in order to uphold the tradition, in order to keep things the way that they are, to keep women not making women's prayer groups, not reading Torah, not leading davening. Um, Ramosheth Chuba, though, presented a new view of men and women that then opens the door to new understandings of halacha also. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is, this is kind of what, what I think we could have, I think this is a more obvious example. But I think that we did see a little bit of that also in Kashrut and in Nida. The idea that once you give an innovative explanation of something traditional, what you're saying is also entering into the canon. You're also, even though you may be trying to uphold the tradition, the new ideas that you're bringing may end up leading to new understandings of not just the mitzvot, the way that you're doing them now, but also to new understandings of how to interpret the halakha. So where does that leave us? Are um, new innovative interpretations of mitzvot, interpretations of mitzvot that may go totally against everything that has been said before, that may contradict the medieval, that may not be based in the psukim, are they a good thing or a bad thing? Um, and it, it seems to me that yes, yeah,
1: Ah. Right. I, I, that, that's, I think, an
0: interesting point that, that could be true about anything here. That um, you know, you say something to a particular audience, and then it gets. Um, would the Ramban be happy that we're reading his um, his explanation today and saying, "Oh my God, this is so awful"? He wasn't trying to offend women. He wasn't trying to um, turn. He was trying to convince a community that he thought would be excited about Hilchot Nida based on what he said. Um, And he had no intention of uh, sort of angering 21st century um, women when he wrote what he wrote. Um, So that's that's definitely one interesting thing that comes out of it, is sort of things that enter into the canon can then sort of just be treated very differently in a new context. it seems to me that that what we've seen today is um, that that there is always going to be a danger to giving innovative explanations, but at the same time, I think we've seen, and I think you'll agree with me, that innovative explanations are sometimes necessary. That, you know, like when we saw the, the Hilchot Nidar, or even the Hilchot Kashrut, that the, the explanations that were given in the Middle Ages, even if they were more in line with the psukim, even if they were they, they wouldn't. They were just not as convincing to us as the modern explanations. And one, one of the things that's amazing about traditional Judaism is that it survived for so long. And I think one of the ways that a halakhic system, that a system of practice, survives for so long is by constantly changing and rethinking the meanings behind those practices, that we can do the same thing as our great-great-grandparents and as Jews 500 years ago and 1,000 years ago. But the reason that we can do those things is because we are constantly rethinking what it means to be doing those things, finding meanings that work for us. Is there a danger of then that leading to um, new interpretations of the law itself? A little one, but in the end the practice has remained pretty much the same, and the explanations have really served mainly, I think, to enrich the practice and a lot more than they serve in maybe some small ways to undermine it. Um, And maybe we could say that even there, they aren't necessarily undermining it, they're causing it to bring, to develop a small amount, but that really, I think in most ways, these explanations do kind of keep a tradition alive and going. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that it's something that, I don't think that the modern views, I don't think that the people who are writing the modern views would say themselves that they are opposed to the Talmud. I think that they're trying to place themselves within the tradition, um, and I think that that's something that has always been done, that people do come up with new ideas and new explanations. I think when it comes to practice, we're very careful about things being sort of very uniform, and I think when it comes to explanations behind the practice, there's a lot more freedom to sort of say something new and to to be interested in something new.
1: Well, I think in some small ways. Right. There is some.
0: But I think that the the changes in attitude, I think, are just so much so much huger, so much larger than the changes in practice. That, you know, we sort of have these small little steps in practice, and then we have these changes in attitude that are just so much bigger, I think.